Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5. We're going to open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to get started into our session today. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord our God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the many wonderful and very great promises that Peter reminds us about in the New Testament. We thank you for the gospel texts and the comforting words that you give to us. We thank you for the ways that you remind us uh, of your goodness and your kindness to your people and your compassion for those who uh, need your compassion. Lord, we thank you that you show us all those same things, even in very difficult texts like this one, uh, even through the prophet Jeremiah, who often has a hard word for your people, uh, yet you use that word. Uh, to sharpen our faith and to draw us to yourself, Lord, your aims and your goals with your people are always one and the same. Uh, you are leading us to yourself in Christ Jesus. You are showing us your goodness and you are showering your mercy upon us that we do not deserve. And so we pray that as we read this word today, uh, if we hear harsh things, if we uh, see difficult things, if you encounter us with a picture of our own sin written uh, in the lives of people very long ago. Uh, help us uh, not only to see those things, but to see the Savior whom you have sent. Help us to see your covenant faithfulness and steadfastness. Help us, Lord, to call upon you and to trust in you. Help us to believe your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Jeremiah chapter 5. Now the rest can come in. Come on. Welcome have you all with us. So today in Jeremiah chapter 5, uh, many of you may be aware that I am at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to teaching this class, uh, and that is because I have not been in this class. We're doing a new members class across the hall, and I've been over there for the past several weeks, and so I have not been here with you uh, I obviously have read Jeremiah 1 to 4, but I've not been with you if you've studied Jeremiah 1 to 4. And so I want to start just by asking, um, you know, those, uh, what did Cindy call them, the A students. Those A students that are here, give me a reminder, jog my memory and the rest of our memories. What are some of the things that we've seen in Jeremiah up to this point? What's the context as we turn to Jeremiah chapter 5 today before we read this text? Anybody? It's, it's not a, a wrong answer because I wasn't here and I can't correct you anyway. So you can tell me almost anything. Greg. Mm, okay. So, it, it, sorry, go ahead, Rick. Do you want to keep going? Yes, do you remember if that was chapter 3 or chapter 4? 2 and 3. Yeah, yeah, so this reminder, look, these things have already happened to Israel, to the northern kingdom. These things are about to happen again. And then this call over and over again, repent, right? Turn, don't be like them. Good. And so that's, that's sort of the background of some of what we're going to see today. 
Uh, other things, big themes that we've seen in Jeremiah up to this point to help us to, to get our bearing as to where we are. Ronnie. So uh, they're, they're paying lip service to the Lord. So, oh, yes, yes, we, we serve the Lord. Uh, they're saying those things, but they're not actually living up to that profession. We're going to see a bit more of that today. Anything else about Jeremiah and the previous chapters before we look at chapter 5? Nick? Okay. Yeah, so there is this persistent imagery. We're going to see that again today as well. This persistent imagery of adultery taking the place of idolatry uh, as sort of a stand-in. And, and there are all of these parallels between Jeremiah's prophecy in that regard and Hosea's prophecy in that regard. Uh, Hosea, of course, was a prophet to the northern kingdom, so Jeremiah is coming after him, uh, and he is now... Uh, sort of following on, it's already a well-known picture, this image of, uh, of going and taking a wife of adultery and having children of adultery and naming them not my people and not beloved and the way that, that all of the adulterous uh, spiritual sins of God's people trickle down throughout the generations. And now we're seeing that again in Jeremiah. Good. We're going to see that today as well. Teresa, you want to add to that? Yeah, so Teresa says that the people are being led astray by the false prophets. We're going to see that again today. I'm glad for the, the themes that you've brought out because they really set up chapter 5 well. And in fact, the end of chapter 5 today, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their own di direction. My people love to have it so. The people like it that way. False prophets. Why do we like to have false prophets? Well, because... False prophets tell us what we like to hear, right? Jeremiah is telling a very, very difficult message that the people don't want to hear, and they constantly want to silence the true prophets, and they want to listen to the false prophets. And that's what God is preparing them for. Good. Thank you for, for bringing out some of those things. Uh, I think you've, you've captured a lot that helps us to set up. Uh, one thing, getting back to what Greg uh, brought up before, this idea of, of repentance and returning especially in chapters 3 and 4, there is this urge, this call. Uh, the word return shows up 10 times in chapters 3 and 4, eight times in chapter 3. It is this idea of, of coming back to the Lord. Um, the word does not show up in the same way in chapter 5. And in fact, in chapter 5, the only instance of repentance uh, comes in, uh, where is it, verse 3. You have made their faces harder than rock, 
they have refused to repent. So when we get into chapter 5 today, what you're going to see as we read through this text is that God is no longer urging and calling like he did in chapters 3 and 4 to repent and to turn and to come back to him. He's essentially saying, this is what's happening because you refuse to come back, right? He is diagnosing their sin. He is pronouncing judgment. He is saying that this will come upon the people because they have been set against the word of the Lord. They have refused to receive it. They have rejected it, and they are not repenting. Yes, Kathy. So is that, is that um, in a study Bible? Is that a note there? In your writing. Well, I should ask you to explain that then, Kathy. Uh, I, I bet Chris has an answer for that, and I bet Chris is going to give the same answer I would give because we just talked about that this week. Chris, how would, you, how would you respond to that? The idea that returning is one of Jeremiah's favorite pictures for repentance, but just being sorry is not the same as repentance. I'm, I'm going to call on Dave and then Greg, and then we're going to read the text because we, <laughs> we haven't gotten to chapter 5 yet. Um, but, but just to follow up on that, uh, I, Rob Steele shared a great sermon with me recently on, uh, on the matter of restitution and making restitution and the idea that it's a sort of working out of our repentance. And you can think of, of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was overjoyed to see the Lord, and he came to his house, and he said, uh, oh, I, I've believed, and, and uh, as a sign of his belief, uh, he said, look, this day I pay back anyone that I've cheated. I give him back fourfold. Um, and so there is not just a sorrow, oh, I wish I hadn't done this, but there is a turning to walk with the Lord and to walk in paths of righteousness. There is what the New Testament, what uh, John the Baptist would call bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. Not just, oh, we, we wish we hadn't. But here's how the Lord, by his spirit, is leading. And I think that's a lot of what Jeremiah is getting to. They've refused to repent, uh, and that's evident by the way that they are refusing to turn away from the sins that they're engaged in. Great. So I saw Dave, and then I saw Greg, and then we're going to go to Jeremiah. You want to pass? Okay. Well, I'm sorry. Did I, did I steal your thunder? Yes! Yes! <laughs> Same wavelength, Dave. Great. Greg. Yeah, 
yeah, and that, that gets to, uh, to the previous chapter, uh, verse 4, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground, sow not among thorns, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds." There is this call to be sensitive to the moving of God's spirit, and it is not there. Uh, you have, uh, he says, you have um, struck them down, but they felt no anguish, no sensitivity to the moving of God. Uh, and that's a lot of the background of what we're going to see as we turn now to Jeremiah chapter 5. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 31. Uh, heads up, you know me, we're not going to cover all of it. Um, we're, <laughs> we're already lagging behind. Uh, we're going to do what we can. As we go through and we discuss the text, stop me if there's something that, that is really a burning question in your mind or something that you uh, think that we ought to hear. Uh, don't let me, as, uh, as Dave would say, just preach the whole Sunday school. Uh, interrupt me and let's have a conversation today. All right, so Jeremiah chapter 5, this is what the word of the Lord tells us through his prophet. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord or the justice of their God. I will go to the great. I will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Therefore a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces. Because their transgressions are many, their apostasies are great. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me. You have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery. They trooped to the houses of whores. They are well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing, no disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them, thus it shall be done to them. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all like mighty warriors. 
They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives us rain in its season. The autumn rain and the spring rain he keeps for us. The weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds and deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets deal falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? Thus far reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now, as we look at, uh, at chapter 5, uh, you will notice, as I mentioned already, that this is not another call to repent, uh, in the same sense that it is uh, more a, a direction or, or a, a denunciation of their lack of repentance. God is showing this is what will happen because his people have not repented. As I was studying this uh, passage this week, I found... Uh, one uh, commentator that had a, a three-part breakdown. You know how much I love a three-part breakdown. Uh, and it seemed to fit really well. It also makes sense if you're reading a plain ESV text in print because the breakdown fits almost exactly the three columns of text that we find if you're, if you're not reading a study Bible or, a, or an electronic version. Um, so the first section is going to be in verses 1 to 9 where the Lord is speaking and Jeremiah is speaking. There's a dialogue between the two of them. And, and this dialogue is exposing the corruption that is in the city. It starts with, a, starts with a search party, right? Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, look and take notice. And then Jeremiah responds, and God is essentially pointing out that there is no righteousness at all. And Jeremiah is saying, well, maybe, maybe there's some here. Maybe there's some over there. And then Jeremiah himself, it seems, finally gives up and says, well, of course, the, the, there is nothing but judgment left. Uh, and a lion and a wolf and a leopard shall come. And then the Lord comes back in. So there's this dialogue in verses 1 to 9. That's the first section. The second section shows up in verses 10 to 19. And here, 
uh, God is speaking more about the, uh, the nature of the judgment that's going to come upon Judah. Uh, it starts actually with a second kind of search party, if we could call it that. Uh, not the prophet this time and not, not those who are looking for righteousness, but verse 10, go up through her vine rows and destroy Make a full end, we'll, we'll talk about that hopefully, but strip away your branches because they're not the Lord's. And so this, this time, the, the roving band or the searching band, whoever it is that's going through Judah, is not going to look for, for righteousness because there is none, but rather they're going to execute judgment. And this is where uh, it says the Lord says he's going to bring this foreign nation, this ancient nation, this warlike nation against them uh, with words that they can't understand. And here's what's going to happen to the people. Uh, and then the last section, it, it actually begins in verse 20. It goes to the end of the chapter. There's a contrast here between the way that creation itself keeps God's ordinances and the way that Judah has broken God's covenant requirements. And so you see this contrast between uh, even the seas, right? God puts a boundary on, on the seas, uh, these, these big, powerful bodies of water. The, the Israelites, of course, were not a seafaring people. Uh, and typically in the prophets and in the Psalms, the, the ocean or the seas uh, represents sort of this unbridled power. Uh, you know, the strongest of God's that manifestation of, uh, of, of earthly or creational power, and yet God says, I put a band of sand around it, and I keep it where it's supposed to be. But you have had no bounds. You've broken through. You've, you've gone astray. And so there's this, this great contrast that happens there, uh, that even though creation obeys God's voice, uh, his people do not. So that's just a, a little breakdown as we look at this passage and the way that we might might see it. One of the other things to notice about uh, Jeremiah chapter 5 is that as commentators commentate on this passage, they point out that this really is what we today call a theodicy. Not the odyssey, but a theodicy. It's from two Greek words, uh, theos and dike, meaning God and justification. It is a vindication or a justification of God's works. Essentially, a theodicy which typically comes from men, right? Typically, it is theologians, it's pastors, it's scholars uh, looking at this problem of evil in the world or looking at the problem of suffering in the world, looking at the problem of the things that we wish weren't there and trying to make sense of what is God doing. We, we in a sense, are trying to justify God to give a justification for why God does the, the things that he does. Here, the Lord himself, we'll get there, Rob. Here, the Lord himself is, is in a sense, justifying himself, right? Uh, take a look at verse uh, 19. <clears throat> when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that's not yours. God himself is saying, when you wonder why I'm doing this, this is why. He's almost entering into a dialogue with the people. You see it in verse 9, uh, and that's repeated in verse 29 at the end. Uh, verse 9 and 29, Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? God, in chapter 5, is essentially saying, My judgment is just. Uh, my judgment is right and true. And he's even asking the people, What do you think? 
don't you think these sins deserve judgment? Isn't it right that these things should come upon you? Rob, what do you want to add to that? Okay. <laughs> In what sense? <laughs> that you didn't like it or you, you wanted to, to jump in? Okay. <laughs> That's one of your persistent themes, so thank you for, for jumping in. Yeah, Cindy. That's a great question. And we've jumped into the middle of my notes, which is great, because while we're here, we might as well stick with it. And, and you know, I answered uh, the comments of some other people earlier. You've said what I was going to say, essentially. When we think about this question of theodicy, I had a, a conversation with, uh, with Chris earlier this week, and, uh, and we were talking about Job. And Chris was pointing out, I think rightly so, that when you get to the end of Job, there's no answer. Right? There, God does not give Job an explanation. We see it. God is the explanation, uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't go lower than that. Right? He, he never comes to Job at the end, and, and you know, most of the book is Job saying, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm righteous, I haven't sinned, and, and his... Uh, his three companions saying, well, obviously you have, and they're trying to draw a correlation between the things that he's suffering and the things God must be doing. And in the end, when God shows up, he simply says, you know, I am, right? As, as Rob is pointing out, he doesn't give a point-by-point -point comparison. He doesn't say, this is why I did this. This is what I had in store. He simply says, this is what I've done. But in Jeremiah quite apart from the way that it's normally human beings who are trying to give this justification for God, God himself is saying, this is why I'm doing this. And you've raised the question of, of the covenant, right? I think there's a, a difference there. And you know, I was going to ask a question, and maybe I'll pose it to the rest of the class since we're, we're thinking about this. Does, does God... Uh, owe Judah an explanation for what's going on in the way that he does not owe Job an explanation for what's going on. Rob? Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, on one level, I agree. We can say God is not beholden to any man. He didn't have to tell Job anything. He didn't even have to have it written down for our instruction. 
Yeah. He didn't, he didn't owe them their lives, their existence, nothing, right? He didn't have to show up and, and speak to Job. It is a gracious act that he does here uh, with Judah. And, and we can say on that same level that God is God and, and Judah is not, that God himself doesn't owe Judah an explanation for what's going on. But, but what about the covenant? What about the things that the Lord has promised and, and said to them? Chris and then Greg. So in the middle of that, Chris, and I agree with everything that you said, in the middle of that you made a comment that what God is doing here is he's showing his people that he is faithful to himself, right? Like another way that we can think about that is that he is reminding them of the consistency of his graciousness. Uh, he is pointing them back to the, the covenant because he's pointing them back to the promises that he's already made. He wants them to see that, look, this is not arbitrary, right? This is not... Uh, you know, this sort of Old Testament ideal, you, you get these people who argue against this uh, quote-unquote vengeful God of the Old Testament who seems to fly off the handle anytime his people do anything wrong, then he comes thundering against them and, and he's just sort of unhinged and, and arbitrary in his judgment. Not at all. God has already set the terms, as we've seen in, in uh, Leviticus and in Deuteronomy at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Uh, he had the people sort of called curses on themselves in a sense, saying, if we do not do this, so it be to us. He's already entered into a covenant, and he's showing them, even as he's bringing judgment, look, the Lord is consistent in his dealing with you. He is gracious. Right? He, he's, he's not flying off the handle. In fact, he's very measured. He told you beforehand exactly what was going to happen. And now, as you go beyond those bounds, all these things are coming. Right? You mentioned the, the loving father. This is one of the things that you, uh, you have to learn when you have children. 
you, you set rules and regulations in the home, and sometimes you tell them, if you do this, you will receive this punishment. And you learn very quickly that if they do that, and you don't give them that punishment, they learn that you don't really care about that thing they're not supposed to do. Or, if they do that and you go way overboard on the punishment, they learn that you're not somebody who can be trusted. Right? So God is telling them, if you do this, this will happen. He's treating them like a gentle father walking with his children. It's not that it happened all at once. He's been patient with them. He's pointing them back to the, the northern kingdom. He's saying, he's showing them, look, the Lord is patient with you. Second uh, Peter, right? The Lord is patient, not, not uh, hoping to bring judgment, but waiting for those to, to come to repentance, right? Greg, you wanted to add to that? So let me ask the question that you're not asking there, Greg, uh, not putting words in your mouth, but uh, is this an excuse? The generations haven't been taught, the great ones haven't taught the poor, they, they haven't passed on the word of the Lord, and they're at this place where their consciences seem to be seared. Is that something that we can hold up and say, well, God doesn't need to hold them accountable in the same way that he would hold the others accountable, right? Here's a very fearful thing in the New Testament. It shows up in several places. It shows up in James where he says, uh, not many of you, my brothers, should be teachers because you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And sometimes we look at that and we see it in a sort of naturalistic sort of way that like if you're going to teach, you ought to really know your stuff. I think that's an eternal judgment sort of sense because the same idea is echoed in Hebrews. Uh, it says, and this is a paraphrase, Hebrews chapter 13, that you ought to uh, obey those who are over you in the Lord uh, and, and you ought to uh, submit to their leadership because they are those who will have to give an account for your souls. Right? It's not an excuse for those who haven't been taught, that, well, nobody told us the way of the Lord. It is, if anything, a further indictment of those who ought to be teaching. Right? So the elders and the leaders you fathers and heads of your household, I think that same pattern applies. 
God holds you accountable for the things that you should be teaching in your home, in the church, uh, in the situations where he has put you in positions of authority and teaching and leadership. That's a weighty thing. That's a fearful thing. Uh, but I think there's some hope here for us. Cindy had a question, and then we'll come back to the hope. How, how does this encourage us at all? thinking verse 10 and verse 18. So verse 10 says, go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. Verse 18, but even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. Here's the, the theology of the remnant, which you hopefully have seen already in chapters 3 and 4. It is not a judgment against all the people unequivocally. Uh, rather, it is in the language of verse 10, and in the language of Jesus in, in John chapter 15, it is God acting as a vine dresser. You remember the picture that Jesus gives in John 15. He says, I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears good fruit, he prunes so that it might bear more good fruit, Every branch that is not in me, he cuts away. And so there is this division here. Go through her, her, her vine rows and destroy. The, the vineyard was one of the metaphoric symbols for Jerusalem, for God's pleasant planting. Isaiah chapter 5, the, the pleasant planting is the people of Judah. The heritage of the Lord are, are you know, the house of Jacob. There was this image running throughout uh, the teaching and, and the uh, the consciousness of Israel that they were God's vineyard. And God is saying, look, they don't belong to me. They're wild vines and we're going to remove them, but not completely. Because there's always a stump, there's always a shoot, there's always this remnant theology moving through God's word and preparing for those who will believe in the New Testament. See it again. We're going to see it today in 1 Thessalonians uh, where Paul denounces the Jewish people. He does that as a Jew who believes in Jesus Christ, right? As part of the believing remnant carrying forth the ministry that God gave through the prophets of the Old Testament, it's very similar language. Nick? And that's difficult, right? Um, now, the commentators, I'll always point to them because they give me an out sometimes. They'll point out that verse 1 seems to be hyperbole, intentionally so, uh, that at least uh, Jeremiah and Baruch, his scribe, would be among those who seek for justice. Maybe. Maybe that's a way to understand it, right? Um, 
I think because of the imagery in, in verse 1 and the way that it reminds us of Genesis chapter 18, everybody remember that when the Lord shows up at, at Abram's tent and he says, I'm going down into the valley into these, uh, these different kingdoms and, and cities and I'm going to look or I'm going to destroy essentially. And Abraham has that, that dialogue. What if there are 50? What if there are 40? What if there are 30? He ends at 10. If God can find just 10 people in Sodom and Gomorrah, he'll spare the whole city, but he can't. Well, here, Jerusalem is being shown to be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And even though the stakes are lower, if there is just one, one-tenth of what Abram agreed with the Lord for, if there's even just one, he'll spare the whole thing. I don't know that it's supposed to be hyperbole. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how to navigate the, the distinction between that. Um, but I think one of the things that we find running through God's word is that even when we think there is no remnant, there is a remnant. right? Even when we think that the, the tree has been cut down and is totally burned, uh, what does the Lord say in Isaiah? Yet a, a stump will, will break forth, a shoot will break forth. Right? Something that sort of grows up from the root system that's unseen, uh, that comes up in another way, that, that perpetuates the, the life of faith among the people. Maybe the Lord is preserving a number because it, because it is from that number that are preserved that the remnant will grow. Maybe. Right? That would be consistent with God's his graciousness. The reality is, you know, you even go to, to Genesis. Noah was a blameless man, upright and faithful in his generation. What happens after the flood? Well, Noah was a drunkard. Uh, so much for the, the upright man. Even if you can find a faithful man, they're dependent upon the Lord's graciousness. So maybe that's a way that we can parse that out. Um, and, and that the Lord is saying, look, things are completely dire. And yet, I'm not going to make a full end because I'm making way for this remnant that's coming. Maybe. Does that help at all? Okay. Now, um, <laughs> how can we find encouragement in what the Lord is doing here? Let me, let me trace it all the way back to this issue that God is showing himself absolutely consistent in his, his dealings with his people. He's pointing back to the covenant, and if you were to go back, uh, let's look very quickly at Deuteronomy chapter 28. I get a volunteer to read Deuteronomy 28, verses 45 to 51. Anybody read those verses for us? Bueller, Bueller, Deuteronomy 28. Dave Babbitt's going to read them, because if you volunteer somebody else in my class, you get to read. Deuteronomy 28, verses 45 to 51. And I want you to listen we're not going to, to stop and pick them all out and, and, uh, and talk about them. Listen to parallels that you hear in Deuteronomy 28 uh, and the way that it might connect to what we're reading here in Jeremiah chapter 5. Deuteronomy 28, verses 45 to 51. Could you read those, Dave?
Thank you. So do you hear some of the parallels there? The Lord is bringing this nation from far away. They're going to swoop down and use different animal imagery, uh, but this idea that they're going to devour everything. They're not going to care about the young or their old. They're, they're not going to leave you wine or grain or oil. Uh, and, and this idea that when we get to Jeremiah 5, the Lord is showing that he is absolutely consistent with what he has already promised to his people. Now, my question is, if the Lord is going, in a sense, out of his way to show this connection to his covenant faithfulness, what encouragement can we take from seeing that in the character of God? We're not under the, the same Old Testament Mosaic covenant. We don't live in the promised land under a threat that uh, a nation will swoop down like an eagle. Nor do we have the same promises that were in the promised land of abundance and things like that. We have different covenant promises. Uh, but as we see God's covenant character, how can we take encouragement? Dave. Think about Hebrews, right? And the way that it makes that connection uh, says, well, well, we all had fathers who disciplined us as it seemed good to them. The implication there is that they made mistakes. <laughs> uh, what seemed good to our earthly fathers wasn't always measured and right and true. Uh, but then it goes on and says, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in the righteousness of Christ. He's always measured. He's always right. He's always just when he gives us things that are difficult or when he gives us things that are good, right? So that's an encouragement we can take, that the Lord, like a heavenly father, like a loving, gracious God and father, cares for his children. Good. What other encouragement can we take from this, this whole big issue of theodicy that God is showing them, this is what I'm doing, this is why I'm doing it? Let me point you in the direction of the covenant promises that we have while Jay gives his answer. Let's put some protoplasm on this planet and see what happens, man. <laughs> right? Uh, let's, let's throw this stuff together and see what comes out on the other side. No, no, God is working uh, Ephesians. You know, he, he's got this, this great plan before the foundations of the world, to unite all things together in Christ, things on heaven and earth and under the earth. He's moving in a direction. He is consistent in that movement. Yes? Welcome. Glad to have you. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things, so we're in Jeremiah chapter 5 today in our Sunday school class, um, and, and one of the things that we see is, uh, notice back earlier in the chapter. Um, oh, where is it? Verse 3. Uh, Jeremiah replies, O oh Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You've struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They made their faces harder than rock. They've refused to repent. Jeremiah is implying that there was a good aim 
in the things that God was doing. We see it on the other uh, side, the other direction, uh, in verse 7. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. Well, on the one hand, God strikes them. On the other hand, he fills them to the full. And sometimes we're tempted to look at the things that we're experiencing and saying, well, I'm not as full as somebody over there. God seems to be striking me, so he must be upset with me, and he must be very pleased with those people over there. God's moving in the same direction, independent of the things that he gives to his people. He works all things together for the, thing, for the good of those who love him. Romans 8 goes on to say, we're more than conquerors, height nor depth, angels, demons, all things and all creation, life or death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is the covenant promise that we have. We're seeing it in Jeremiah, right? You fill them to the full, you strike them, and yet they're not turning. This was God's aim all along. How about the fact that God gives us promises? We saw a, uh, a baptism just a couple weeks ago, and I proclaimed the covenant promises that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we hear that, and we go, is God going to stick with that? I called on the name of the Lord, but then, I don't know. I've had a, had a rough week. I've had a rough year. I've had a rough couple five years. I don't feel like I'm very close to the Lord. Does he still want anything to do with me? And he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all iniquity. He doesn't shift. He doesn't change. He keeps his covenant promises. And he's given Jesus Christ as the guarantee of those things, that he is working good for his people. Now we're preaching Sunday school. Good. I, I want to share a, a word with you um, from this lovely little book. Um, does everybody have this book? The Golden Booklet of the True Christian Life. It's actually a snippet from Calvin's Institutes that he wrote to be intentionally application-driven. Things that you can take and put into practice. Uh, who does not have this book? Who would be willing to read this book if I gave you a copy? Lizzie, I saw your hand first. When I'm done, this is your copy. I have many more. I give them away like candy. I just bought like seven more this week. So if you want one, let me know. But here's what Calvin says. This is a, this is a section where he's talking about the value of cross-bearing as Christians. And this is a section where he, he goes through and he says, well, what, what does cross-bearing do for us? Well, it teaches obedience. It makes us hopeful. Uh, it makes for discipline. Here's a section where he talks about bearing the cross, bringing repentance in the lives of God's people. Here's what he says. He says, moreover, it is necessary that our most merciful Father should not only prevent our future weaknesses, but also correct our past offenses to keep us in the path of obedience. Therefore, in every affliction, we ought immediately to review our past life. Now you read that and you think, uh-oh, that seems like that bad theology that says if things aren't going well, God is angry at you. There's some unrepentant sin. Uh, that's not what he's saying. He says, when we do that, he says, in every affliction, we ought to immediately review our past life. And when we do, we shall certainly find that we have deserved such chastisement. Nevertheless, we should not draw the conclusion that we are first of all exhorted to patience because we should remember our sins. What's he saying there? 
we can't draw that conclusion, right? The conclusion that wants to say, if things are going poorly, your spiritual life must be in danger. No, 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 no. It's not, first of all, because we should remember our sins. He says, but Scripture furnishes us a far better reason. He says, uh, Scripture furnishes a far better reason when it informs us that in adversity, adversity, quote, we are chastened by the Lord in order that we should not be condemned with the world. That is, God has a proactive discipline in mind. Discipline in the church, Scott's teaching it across the hall to our new members class. Discipline in the church is like discipline in the home. It is proactive as well as reactive. God leads us and teaches us in the way that we should go. He also responds when we don't go in that way. Calvin is saying that when we face adversity, we should always think of our past sins, not because there is a one-to-one correlation, but because God is always leading us in paths of righteousness. Then he goes on in a a later section. He says, we are extremely perverse if we cannot bear with the Father when he shows his loving kindness toward us and his great concern for our salvation. Scripture points out this difference between believers and unbelievers. The latter, that is unbelievers, as old slaves of their incurable perversity cannot endure the rod of discipline. But the former, that is believers, like children of noble birth, profit by repentance and correction, and now we must choose where we prefer to stand. So this is what Calvin's getting at. He's saying uh, the Lord always has proper aims. He's always helping us and moving us in the right direction. That's yours, Lizzie. Yep. Um, He's always moving us in the right direction, and he always has his fatherly love in mind, whether he fills us to the full or strikes us, in a sense, to use the language of Jeremiah. Now, Kathy, you you had uh, your hand raised. Question? Page number? I marked it for Lizzie, and and if you want a copy, I'll mark it for you. 55. 55. The cross brings repentance. We're almost done. Anything else we want to say about Jeremiah chapter 5? I told you we wouldn't cover the whole thing. We didn't cover hardly any of it, but that's okay. Uh, Steve will be back next week, and he'll take care of everything I didn't cover. Dave. I don't know. Is that the one? The prophets will become wind. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so there's a, there's a play there, right? The, the word for wind is the same as the word for spirit. It's ruach. Um, and they're pushing back against the Lord. He's put his spirit in his prophecy in the mouths of his prophets. They're saying, ah, it's... They're a bunch of windbags, essentially, is what they're saying, coarsely. Um, They're just, they're spouting off. They're full of hot air. You don't need to listen to them because God's not going to do anything against you. And then he comes back in verse 14. Actually, I'm going to make the word in your mouth, Jeremiah, a fire. And the people will be like wood. It's similar to that picture in Isaiah where the word is a fire and the people are stubble and it burns them up like chaff. All right, so the encouragement here is that God is incredibly consistent. That God makes and keeps covenant promises that he's given Jesus Christ to take 
the judgment that we deserve because we all are guilty of these sins as well. Remember where it ends. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction and my people love to have it so. Don't we love to have our ears tickled? Uh, but Christ has come uh, so that we will obey him and listen to his word. One more comment before we go. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I think so. Um, so the Lord, uh, again, is showing us the right way to go. And even in showing us the way that he judges his people, that stick of chastisement in a sense, uh, he's pointing us uh, to what will happen when he changes the hearts of his people. That's the thread running throughout Jeremiah. It's pushing in the direction of the new covenant. It's waiting for God to do something, not just with the external obedience, but with the internal heart of his people, and it's going to get there, right? And in the New Testament, it's going to point back to Jeremiah and say, God has dealt with us from the inside out to make us able and willing to believe in him. I think that's a, a great encouragement of what the Lord is doing with his people. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would uh, put it deep into our hearts, make us to... Uh, receive your implanted word with meekness. Make us not only hearers, but doers of it as well. We praise you, Lord, uh, for your precious and very great promises and pray that you would give us the spirit that we may follow you and trust in you to receive life by your name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.